Today is Friday, June 22nd, 2018. Time for episode 54 of the Barnhart Podcast. And do you remember back when um, Trump was still new as president, a rumor came out that he was angry at his staff that they couldn't get the Gorilla Channel on his television there at the White House? Yes, I remember this. And I don't know who pulled that story, but the entire liberal media ran with it. It was a complete uh, farce. Somebody made this up and, and took the entire liberal media uh, hook, line, and sinker. Not that they were terribly, um, uh, <laughs> they weren't chastened by it, but it just proves that they, they wanted to believe anything negative that came out about um, Trump. But if there was a gorilla channel, they would be in mourning and flying flags at half mast because Coco the talking gorilla died. Well, Coco, Coco the, the not really talking gorilla. I mean, talk about double fake news. I mean, that's uh, it. I saw that news. Um, earlier this week, and it was right after we did the show last week about, you know, not all doctors, <laughs> doctors, as some people call their dogs, go to heaven. We had that big discussion of rational intellects and how animals are not and all this. And then lo and behold, Coco uh, expires during the week. And it, uh, <laughs> it, it it manifested so many of the things that we talked about on last week's show. There was, there was one, one celebrity, celebrity, celebrity that, that returned to Coco on Twitter as a, as a quote, woman. And, you know, acknowledged the fact that they were, they were um, referring to this animal as a woman unapologetically, on and on and on, all these lies and untruths about how Coco was this profound philosophizer, thinker, environmentalist, that Coco would sit around. The word fluent was used in almost every news story, and sometimes it was used multiple times, that Coco was fluent in American Sign Language. Hate to break it to you. I mean, we all remember the little... um, the story, not the little story, the huge story in National Geographic from 1985 about Coco having this kitten. And oh my gosh, isn't this the cutest thing ever? Look at this ginormous, huge gorilla snuggling this little baby kitten. And isn't this the cutest thing in the world? And Coco can speak and Coco can communicate. No, no. It turns out that the whole thing is is just kind of it's a combination of a uh, a fantasy of this this woman, this quote unquote scientist, Penny Patterson, um, who started this project 45 years ago. She lived for 45 years with this gorilla and she started this project as a as a girl in her 20s, got this gorilla um, fell in love with it as her own child. And then when it came, when the study was over after four years, instead of, you know, giving, giving the gorilla back to the San Francisco zoo and moving on with her life, she was of course, so completely and totally attached to this gorilla as her child. She, she considered Coco to be her child and she was Coco's mother. Oh, she very, was very unhealthy. She was a trendsetter in terms of of, of the cross-species parental uh, dynamic. Oh, yeah, absolutely. She's really the one who started the whole very bad ball rolling in all of this. She essentially stole Coco from the San Francisco Zoo, set set up this foundation, and then in order to keep this thing going... Um, I, I, I don't think that she's like criminally evil, um, but she, 
clearly was was incredibly sentimental, non-scientific about the whole thing, never produced any data at all. There's Coco is now dead after 45 years of quote unquote research. There's essentially no data for anyone to study. And the reason there's no data is because to a large extent, if there were any data, it would show that Coco was absolutely not communicating, talking, anything that could fall into that category. All the videos that exist of Coco, if you see them, they are very short and they are extremely heavily edited because Coco, yeah, she could do American Sign Language signs. She's got the intelligence. She's there. There are cattle dogs that are as smart as Coco is. There are cattle dogs who you can stand there and talk to in in English or whatever the, the vernacular is, wherever the dog is. You can stand there and speak to them. You can give them explicit orders and commands about, you know, go to the south pasture, get the cows out of the south pasture, bring them to the corral without any gesticulating, any IQs or anything like that. The dog understands what you're saying and then will go do what you just told it to do. There are dogs, I'm convinced, that have the level of spoken language comprehension that Coco had. What's the difference with Coco? Coco had opposable thumbs. She had hands that were shaped somewhat like ours because she's a great she's a great ape and great apes have opposable thumbs. And so as a result, she was able to mimic and in a certain sense learn some American sign language signs, but she this notion that Coco was sitting around speaking and conversing with anyone, Penny Patterson or anyone else, this is completely false. This is, this is a lie that, and I'm going to say it was a lie. It was a lie that Patterson and her, her accomplices in the Gorilla Foundation put forth in order to keep the gravy train rolling. I mean, this was, this was a very, it was a very sexy kind of a news story. And then Patterson just completely devolved into this sentimental hyper sentimentality and then started mapping all of her political agenda onto Coco. So within the last decade, you have Patterson producing videos purporting to show Coco saying thing, you know, talking about how people are killing the planet and this is making her sad and on and on and on. This is all a lie. This was all, this was all, I hate to say it, but it was in large part a scam that was perpetrated. Um, We'll put into the show notes a very telling article from 2014. In 2014, the entire board of the Gorilla Foundation, which is this Penny Patterson thing that's taking care of Coco and one other gorilla, a male gorilla, who, by the way, is basically completely ignored. Um, the gorilla, the entire board of the Gorilla Foundation, and I think most of the staff resigned en masse, en bloc, with the exception, the only person who didn't resign from the board was the figurehead celebrity, Betty White, who had no idea what was going on. Everyone on the board resigned because Coco was obese, um, 
basically they argued that Coco was maltreated. There was some really weird stuff going on with Patterson and what was going on with swirling around this facility and Coco. I mean, like super weird, um, disturbingly weird. And I'll, I'll let I'll let y'all read that if you're interested. But so, you know, so basically, Coco had a Me Too moment ahead of schedule of the rest of the media too. Uh, I wouldn't call it Me Too. I mean, Coco for for boiling it down, Coco basically had a nipple fetish, and everyone there who worked at the Gorilla Foundation apparently one of the only ways that you could get Coco to do anything was to expose your nipples to her, men and women. So it was it was constantly for all of the staff and everything. It was this hyper weird situation where they were all having to basically run around naked women in front of men with Patterson, like telling them, if you don't do this, you're going to psychologically traumatize um, Coco and all of this. I've also, uh, we'll put also a link in the show notes to this really interesting um, lecture given by a um, uh, professor, Robert Sapolsky at Stanford. That's where, that's, that's where Penny Patterson originally, I think did her, was doing her doctoral work. Um, because she ended up being just outside of San Francisco. So that would be Stanford. And she got Coco from the, from the San Francisco zoo. And he makes the point that, you know, all serious scientists would talk to Patterson and know that she was just completely cuckoo pants. So for example, um, they were, he was talking to Patterson at one point years ago and, um, there had been another gorilla that, that they had wanted Coco to make with, but it, but it, they never they made, made it, you know, that all got all tripled, triggered those great, great apes in captivity, there, it screws up their, their ability to mate and form attachments and so forth. So they had this other, um, gorilla named Michael and Michael died. Michael died in like 2000 or something like that. And I, I believe he died in, in the fall of the year. So this professor, Sapolsky, is talking to Penny Patterson. And Penny Patterson stands there in complete seriousness. Now, this is probably like in the summer. This is in July or August. And says, yeah, yeah, Coco, Coco's doing well. But, you know, we're getting ready to move into a really difficult time for her because and she tends to get she tends to get really depressed and and, you know, really, really melancholy. And, and you know, Sapolsky says, well, why is that? And she says, well, we're we're moving into October and 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 Michael died in October. So that's a really difficult, difficult time of year for Coco. And he just you know that that Patterson is just completely unserious as if Coco has any relation is you know, times of years some other ape died years and years and years ago and so you know Coco goes into some some depression and 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 existential angst and all that this is this is insane then what happened to reconfirm all of this Again, to prove that Patterson is just completely making all of this up. And, you know, whether that's mendacious or whether, you know, she's just kind of a typical weird now old woman who just, you know, never got married, never had kids, never had any life and was completely, totally wrapped up in this gorilla. So in 2000, I think 2001, Robin Williams, the comedian actor, 
you know, they would let these celebrities come and, you know, visit Coco for a few hours or whatever. And one of the and they would video this. And then, of course, they'd hustle off of it and make all this money off of the fact that, oh, look, Coco's interacting and tickling Robin Williams. And isn't this the most amazing thing ever? Well, whatever. So so Robin Williams visits Coco in 2001 for like three hours. He's he goes and visits for one afternoon, basically. So this is 2001. Robin Williams commits suicide in 2014. Penny Patterson then proceeds to put all this stuff out on the internet that when I told Coco that Robin Williams had died, Coco became became very upset and her lips started quivering and she became very melancholy and sad and went over and sat by herself and you could tell that she was she was really really touched and moved and extremely sad and went into a period of mourning for her quote unquote best friend Robin Williams a man that she met for, that she was in, you know, physical proximity to for three hours, 13 years earlier. This was marketed as Coco's best friend has died and Coco went into a, a profound period of mourning over this. This is abject nonsense. This is sentimental garbage and it is sentimental garbage with the aid, with the, with the aim of generating donations, cash flow, revenue for Penny Patterson and the Gorilla Foundation, which is basically just this thing of subsidizing Penny Patterson's life, um, playing with her pet gorilla, not doing any research, not generating any data. There's nothing there. Coco's dead. There's basically nothing to show for it except these heavily edited videos solely designed to make it look like Coco had the ability to do something which she clearly did not. A lot of times when Coco would make signs and stuff, it was completely random. What Coco learned is that if she did things with her hands and would make these American sign language signs, that Penny Patterson would give her food Look at the videos of Coco. The the Coco channel on YouTube is called Coco Flix, K-O-K-O-F-L-I-X. Just pull up and look at these videos of this gorilla. The first thing that you will notice is that the gorilla is obese. The gorilla has a belly on it that is absolutely enormous. And this is one of the reasons why, if you read the, um, the essay that I'm going to link in the show notes, it's one of the rain, main reasons why most of the staff quit is because Coco was completely obese and in terrible health. I, a lot of people don't realize this. Gorillas are um, 100% herbivorous. They they eat only plants. They are not omnivores. They don't eat meat. They're not like us. They're just in the jungle hanging out, and all they eat is leaves and stuff. I, I didn't realize that. No wonder the vegans love them. Yeah, exactly. Except you look at all these videos that Penny Patterson is is openly putting out. And then you get the testimony of all the people who, you know, worked in the Gorilla Foundation. And a lot of these people were trained zoologists, biologists, um, you know, um, animal nutritionists, so on and so forth. And they're looking at not only what 
what cocoa is being fed and they would try to keep Coco's diet to, you know, first of all, calorie restricted so that she would lose weight because she was way overweight and um, to to a true gorilla herbivorous diet, a, a completely vegetarian diet. And then what would happen is that Penny Patterson would roll in and start interacting with Coco and Penny Patterson would be feeding Coco chocolate. She'd be feeding Coco like cold cuts, processed meat and stuff like that. Why, why you look at this gorilla and wonder why this gorilla is obese. It's, it's inactive. It was not getting any proper, you know, gorilla activity and socialization. They said that, that Coco would just sit around. How familiar does that, does this sound? Sit around and watch TV and just wouldn't even go outside. Wouldn't, wouldn't go out and play, wouldn't do anything. Um, and then Penny Patterson would roll in and, you know, Coco's Coco's no dummy in the animal sense. Coco learns that if I will make these things, these gestures with with my hands, that this woman will just throw treats at me, will throw chocolate at me, will throw processed meat at me, yada, yada, yada. Well, of course, the, the gorilla is going to do stuff like that. If your dog had opposable thumbs, you would certainly be able to train your dog to make American sign language signs. If you have a smart, if you have an intelligent dog, you know, we're talking about something like a, I don't know, what's a smart dog of um, an Alsatian or, you know, a lot of the shepherd dogs, the cattle dogs, they're, they're pretty intelligent dogs. If they had opposable thumbs and hands like that, sure, you could train them how to make a few American Sign Language signs. Of course you could. Um, but Coco would never voluntarily, you know, start making observations about anything. The only thing that actually Coco would do is once in a while she would make signs indicating that she wanted food, she wanted drink, and things relating to going to the bathroom, as you can imagine. Um, this notion that this gorilla was just sitting around, and again, that word was used in almost every news story. Coco was fluent in American Sign Language. This is this is just garbage. It's absolutely garbage. And, and we bring it up just because it's exactly what we were talking last week about, you know, this, this business of elevating animals into rational intellects, which they are not, and then dumbing human beings down. I read one news story about Coco just within the last couple days that claimed that she had an IQ of between 75 to 95. Again, this is absolute garbage. People with IQs in that range can work at McDonald's. I don't think uh, Coco could do that. Of course they can't. No, I don't think Coco could do anything like that. No. Um, Even on her best day of communicating, I don't think Coco could do as well as uh, or be as be understood as well as you you were during the three times we had this little buzz storm here a minute ago. And I apologize for folks listening to the podcast. There is something going on with Skype tonight. Um, there have been, I, I can hear the buzz, uh, things when they happen and, um, we may have to disconnect and, and, uh, reboot, but, um, Anne, are you still there? Yeah. 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 Okay. No problem here. Just, just wanted to point out that this isn't some artifact that we're not hearing. I'm, I'm aware of it, but Anne's on a roll. I, I didn't want to cut her off. <laughs> so that's, that's kind of my cocoa rant. And I would, I would encourage you all, um, because there's no one speaking out on the other side of this Coco thing. And if you're the kind of person who leaves comments or anything, there's going to be a lot of talk about Coco and, you know, 
Coco and humans are basically the same thing, yada, yada, yada. And this all just needs to be refuted and get the truth out there. And I don't know what what Penny Patterson's going to do, but she has another gorilla. And that other gorilla should be returned to some sort of at least he should be returned to a zoo. He obviously can't go back into the wild, but he should be put into a zoo environment where, you know, he has a nice big habitat and he can interact with with other gorillas. Uh, It's kind of scary to think that you've got this this woman who I don't know, it'll be interesting to see if Penny Patterson just loses her marbles completely with Coco dead because Coco was was this woman's entire raison d'etre for, for her entire adult life and she clearly wasn't, wasn't well grounded to start with. Um, but she does have a, she's got custody of another gorilla and, you know, Again, these are not rational intellects, but it's we're not desirous that that these animals suffer and have horrible, miserable lives either. Yeah, get get the other one back into a zoo somewhere so it can at least have something close to a to a decent life, even if it is in captivity. Yeah, put it in protective custody so that at least uh, it can be safe from Penny Patterson. And one of the things mm-hmm. that occurred to me while you're telling a story about uh, Coco and Robin Williams, if that long after having met Robin Williams, that the news story was that Robin Williams was the best friend of Coco. Yeah. Penny Patterson made a great impression on this thing. She was around, around Coco every single day, but Robin was his best friend. Well, Penny Patterson, I think she considers herself Coco's mother. So, but it it was all a marketing shtick. It was all totally designed to to generate to generate cash flows off of the fact that Robin Williams died, and she did have some video footage of Robin Williams and Coco together. Um, that that's basically all it was. And there's some other celebrities that she's got footage of. Mister Rogers went to see Coco. Um. Who else? Oh, Flea, the the bassist from the Red Hot Chili Peppers. You know, there's been a there's been a Flea. You know, Coco is Flea. Yeah, the the bassist from the rock band. He he went up there. It's, there's been a steady pilgrimage of celebrities. Shatner, William Shatner went up there. Um, well, Shatner was yeah, Captain yeah. Kirk. I'm just still laughing that that there was there's somebody who goes by the name of Flea. <laughs> who is willing mm-hmm. to be called that in public. I mean, I've yeah, heard of the Red oh, Hot yes. Chili Peppers and I've heard their music, but I didn't realize there was a character named Flea. I'm, who's smarter here? The, the darn um, gorilla or somebody who calls themselves Flea and thinks that's a good thing? Well, there there you go. There you go. <laughs> and of course, these people all come out and they ooh and ah and say, oh my gosh, that was the most spiritually deep thing that's ever happened to me and I look into Coco's eyes and it was looking into the eyes of an old soul and it was like she was totally reading my emotions and all this you just roll your eyes and think man man if that if that's how shallow you are then <laughs> come on if you walk and, away you know, from, it, I was gonna say if you walk away from that encounter and you say the elephant or the, I don't know why I'm trying to call it an elephant if the if the gorilla read my soul but you didn't read the fact the gorilla was saying save me yeah that's a yeah. problem or, or the gorilla was just saying, you know, pa- pass the baloney or whatever, you know, um, this business of just reading all of these emotions and ascribing all these emotions to these animals is just absolutely ridiculous. At the end of the day, as we covered last week, the thing that's driving animals is that they want food and they've, they've identified where the food is coming from, who provides the food, and that is who... 
they will, you know, ingratiate themselves to submit themselves to whatever it is. Um, if, if those are the people that have the food, I will do what I need to do to get the food from the people. And that's what's driving most of it. And, and talking about, was it last week or two weeks ago? I guess it was last week. Um, the whole notion about uh, talking about talking down about dogs in a sense, and I'm, I'm, I'm mentioning it that way based on some of the feedback that came in. We're not saying that dogs are horrible or that uh, you can't have affection for your dogs or the dogs don't have affection for you. It's when it becomes inordinate, it's a real problem. Um, obviously, uh, all of creation was was created for the benefit of mankind. It says it right there in Genesis. And there are going to be sentient creatures that don't have intelligence per se, but are have instinct and highly developed instinct to be of service to man. And dogs are certainly in that class. Cats... I don't know what they do. No, I, I like no. cats, but they're they're not the same as dogs. They they they're more to, um, you know, the the, the Egyptians worship them as gods, and the cats never forgot that. But, and, um, right. <laughs> but yes, no, they think that we, that we we exist in service to them, and they're a little bit confused about that. Yeah, maybe cats serve as a warning to us about uh, how how ridiculous we would look if we were had such a high opinion of ourselves all the time. And you know, that's a service too to be reminded how how ridiculous we look to others when we have too high of an opinion of ourselves. And also just what, what acedia looks like. They're, they're basically acedia incarnate and acedia is the vice where you don't care and you don't care that you don't care. So cats are kind of like walking, walking incarnations of acedia. I hadn't thought of it that way before, but <laughs> I'll have to think about that. Right. I right. I don't know. I, I, like I said, I like cats. Uh, if I had to identify with one animal versus the other, definitely I would be a cat, not a dog, but dogs, I think they're, they're good working animals. I mean, you talked about the different breeds that are intelligent and whatnot. The, you mentioned a few breeds. The first thought that came to my mind was like Bel Belgian Malinois and German shepherds mm. because they are yeah. good working dogs, military working dogs. And, mm -hmm. um, they, they're not smart in the sense that they reason things out on their own, but they're extremely well trained and you give mm -hmm. them verbal cues in Dutch in, in the case of the Belgian Malinois and, and they are extraordinarily efficient at doing things, the, even things that the, the most elite top tier soldiers in any army can't do. Uh, yeah, they're, they're, they're highly trained. Well, cattle dogs, I mean, and that's so, so much of the cattle dog thing is instinctual watching a, you take a um, like an Australian shepherd puppy and just turn it loose and see whatever it is, however it is that God gets that that that, that uh, hardwired wire into, into them, where you turn, turn them out, you know, with you know sheep or cattle or whatever it is, and they just immediately know exactly what to do and how to do it, and watching that hard hard coded into them by god instinct kick in and go to work that's it's a really incredible thing to watch and yet cattle dogs can be a tremendous tremendous aid to to mankind to men in terms of ranching like i said both cattle sheep uh, to, to some extent goats as well i mean any any of the herding animals like that they are and they have instincts and abilities and skill sets and capabilities that are clearly, clearly 
intelligently created, endowed, and baked in. And I mean, and you compare an Australian Shepherd or you know one of the breeds of what are called cattle dogs. They're kind of ugly little dogs, but they're incredibly intelligent. And you compare that to what I call the you know just the the rat dogs, the absolutely useless dogs that we were talking about last week in terms of the you know the women who put them in the baby buggies and all and uh. Like the I mean, chihuahuas? What's a stu- the chihuahuas. Um, you know, and doc- dachshunds can be really cute and really funny, but they're just, the ones today are just dumb. Um, and a lot of the, what are pom- Pomeranians, the fluffy ones, you know, Bichon Frise, they're, they're cute and all that, but they're just, you can tell they're just dumber than a box of hair. And they wouldn't be able to actually do anything. I think the the only breed of dog that, you know, kind of has the floofy, um, has the floofy appearance and all of that, but is surprisingly intelligent and and capable is the poodle. And a lot of people forget that 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 poodles, as they're supposed to be, are actually very intelligent dogs. Um, but again, a lot of them are just like Coco, sitting around watching TV and refusing to go outside and just hustling people for pieces of bologna and stuff. That's that's not that's not a life. That's just a that's just a waste in terms of what what a gorilla is and and you know should be doing and living its life and doing gorilla things. I think a lot of these dogs today, you know, it's kind of, it's just kind of a waste of their doggy life and their doggy capability. They should be out. They should be running around. Some of them should be, you know, like dachshunds, for example, I believe are they're ratters. They're supposed to be going down into into holes and and getting rats and badgers and whatever whatever else would be down. Well, not badgers. Badgers are mean. I'm thinking of something else. Um, you know, definitely but rats getting, and tunneling creatures. And I was going to say, unlike tunneling creatures, unlike cats, yeah. and certainly unlike uh, gorillas. A lot of the monasteries in, in Europe throughout the Middle Ages and up until, I don't know, until the asteroid hit, a lot of them were engaged in breeding dogs and breeding working mm. dogs. And there are breeds of dogs that were specifically bred to do certain things, like the short mm-hmm. short legs, long torso. I think the dachshund is one of them. To be able to get in and ferret out things like uh, moles and, and, and tunneling varmints and um, – yeah. And, and, you know, the beagles, for example, I think were specifically bred to go after rats and other kinds of vermin like that. Um, mm-hmm. And then, of course, on, on the uh, on the other end of the scale, um, some of the uh, German guard dogs, like the German shepherds, and and, and um, the, the the monks bred these as working tools. I mean, they they did to the monks, that is, and, and a lot of the, the monasteries did to this part of nature, the the animal kingdom, what they did to the, 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 the land side or the landscape and, and the... The, the the land I should say in in the various places they went they improved it so they sure, found a, they found sure. a swamp in southern France drained it and turned it into the best vineyard you've ever seen anywhere in the world they go into From southern terracing, England yes absolutely they, yeah they go into southern England which was you look like some place that should have been nuked they drain all the swamps around Kent and it looks like a marvelous garden now well yeah they take a dog and they say yeah there's there's working potential here and they mm-hmm. they breed it out over, over centuries. For the greater glory of God and for and for the you know the service of mankind, I don't. They ignored cats for the most part, except for the fact that they killed rats and and um, kept some of the some some of the vermin down around the the grain stores and whatnot. I don't know mm-hmm. if the, if the monks would have had access to to apes, they might have been able to do something useful with them. Um, certainly, much more so than Penny Patterson would have. Yeah, but it clearly 
it clearly wasn't wasn't in the in the in the divine providence for that to happen and i'm fine with that because pers- personally speaking i have always found um apes and monkeys to be creepy when ever since i was a little kid i just don't i don't like them i didn't i never liked dolls of them when we would go to the zoo on the annual field trip with school i despised the ape and the monkey house just don't don't like them, don't want to be around them, don't find them interesting. I mean, it's good enough that they're, you know, that's great that that we're doing things to help keep them from going extinct because those savages over in, in Africa, appar- apparently they just kill gorillas and eat them. It's called bushmeat. And it's this enormous multi, multi million billion dollar trade. I mean, again, how creepy can you get? Um, you know, eating, eating a gorilla and eating a gorilla hand. And it, it so resembles, it looks like, um, well, the the thumb is way shorter and the fingers are way longer, but it's still, it bears enough of a resemblance to a human hand that is just really creepy. And those people over there eat it. And I, uh, that's, uh, that's gross. Um, is it gateway cuisine for cannibals to come back to other food or what? Uh, I, I don't know, but it, it does have, apparently they ascribe all kinds of voodoo magic to eating, eating great apes and stuff like that. So I think it's probably all, uh, creepily tied into, um, tied into cannibalism and so forth. And again, the dirty little secret that nobody wants to talk about is that they, they have pretty much settled on the science that the way that HIV made the leap from great apes into humans is because there was, there was creepy bestiality stuff going on over, over in Africa. And that's how the disease made the leap. Um, well, that's, that's one popular theory. The other one is that it was cooked up in a CIA lab. I mean, take your pick. I don't know which one. Well, (laughs) I think, I think the bestiality one sadly is far, far more plausible, far more plausible. I think you may, when you, when you look at the CIA can't build, can't build a virus from scratch. I mean, man, man's scientific prowess is, is not to that point yet. And it sure as hell wasn't to that point 40, 50 years ago when HIV first started showing up and it first started showing up amongst homosexual populations and people who would do sex tourism to Africa. So, you know, there you go. Well, it's not like the CIA wasn't trying, but I, I would I would default probably to thinking that it's more of a punishment for sin looking at the population who had the worst problem with it. Um, mm-hmm. That's not even the right way to say it. Where the, where the highest incident of it happened. Um, yeah. the, the fact that it, it, it crossed over into drug users probably is because they, that, that, um, that group overlapped with, uh, the, the, the homosexuals that, yeah, that were, were so militant absolutely. about it. I mean, there yep. were, there were people who lost their careers in the sixties and seventies by pointing out the epidemiological fact of where AIDS was coming from. Um, that was too much science to be pointing out. So, uh, what are you going to do? Is that Romans one, where it says they will receive in their bodies the due punishment for their for their sins? It's right there. I mean, hello, venereal diseases, right there. What do you expect? But and that's another reason why the sodomites hate God so much is precisely because not only will He never ratify their sins, but you know the punishment is not just cooked into you know 
objective moral norms coming from the church. It's, it's cooked into, into creation itself. You do these things. You do these, these horrible, horrible, disgusting sexual sins. And you're, you're going to end up dying of dying of something very, very ugly. And again, that's just another reason why they hate God. Absolutely. Um, yep. I wasn't sure where the, where we wanted to go next with this. <laughs> I think we, let's we should talk, probably change speaking topics. Speaking of which, let's talk about uh, the lesbians in the Navy. And I'll let you I'll let you open that up because, again, you're the Navy guy. And, again, this is touching on something that we talked about two or three episodes ago with regards to the fact that, you know, that study came out that said that the preparedness in the Navy was really bad. And then we started talking about, you know, the, the wreck of that ship last year. And now, lo and behold, again, right after we talk about this, I'll let you talk about the the news that kind of broke on that about ten days ago. I'm I'm still laughing that you say talking about lesbians in the navy. Let's let's hand it over to you. It's like <laughs> it, it was it was still <laughs> you were in the it navy. was you were in the navy. <laughs> yes, but it was still don't ask, don't tell when I was in. So uh, yeah. officially, yeah, like I said, there there were maybe three or four women uh, assigned to a ship that I was on at any at any given time during my career. Um, I don't know what their orientation was. I didn't ask them. Um, anyway, the, the, what we were talking about with the, the crashes last year, USS McCain and USS Fitzgerald, uh, with, in the case of the USS Fitzgerald, uh, it came out in this last week, since the last time we talked about it, two episodes ago, that the officer of the deck, which we talked about the, the spot check that was done throughout the Navy of 196 or so, or 126, whatever, there was a hundred some odd officers of the deck. Uh, spot checked at random to see what their qualifications were, uh, how, how good they were with their qualifications, and only 26 of them passed without any concern. Mm-hmm. And we asked the questions, or, or I think I suggested the possibility is like maybe there is a, a lot of political correctness going on here of you know people were being passed through the pipeline because um, we had to make sure that all, all of the uh, intersectionality points were being addressed that, that a certain number of females were being passed through a certain number of minorities aside from female were being passed through. And it comes out in the last week that the officer of the deck on the, on the Fitzgerald and the combat information sent, no, the, uh, tactical action officer were both female. And for those who need a, a mild refresher of this, the officer of the deck is the officer on the bridge who stands in place of the captain while the ship is at sea. And the uh, tactical action officer is the is the officer in the combat information center who stands in place of the captain when the ship is at sea. When the ship goes to general quarters, when they expect a fight, the captain will go to the combat information center and and take the, take over from the TAO, and the the captain is the one who is fighting the ship, so to speak. And the typically it's the navigator who will go to the bridge and take over from the officer of the deck. Um, very highly highly qualified people in both cases. Now, in this case, it comes out that both of the, the TAO and the officer of the deck were both women. And mm. one, one, one of the mm. things, now, okay, okay, fine. There are highly, highly qualified women to be found in any given uh, profession. But one of the other things that came out was that the TAO and the officer of the deck were not talking to each other. And one of the things I began to wonder is, were they not talking to each other because they didn't know they were supposed to be? Because they weren't that good at their jobs to begin with, and there was incompetence, or maybe they just didn't like each other when, you know, 
wasn't their time of the month and just weren't talking to each other? Were there other reasons why they weren't communicating? And I don't know. It, it's again, it's one of these things that I started thinking about it. And we were talking about this before we started recording. I know of cases when I was in the Navy of officers who absolutely hated each other, who if on Liberty, if they, if they came within 15 feet of each other, they were throwing punches. But when, if they were on duty at the same time, even on the bridge at the same time, they were completely professional. They still hit each other's guts. They did the job and they went their own ways as soon as the job was over. I was well, never in a position. Say- I was never in a position to experience the same, same thing with women involved. But didn't, I can just imagine you it wouldn't say, be the though, same. say, though, that these two positions, by definition, it, it, it was absolutely necessitated that they were constantly communicating with each other. Didn't, didn't you say that these two, these two posts required constant back and forth communication just in order to run the ship? So the notion that these two women were not speaking to each other is just like incomprehensible with regards to operating a naval ship. The two ships that I was on when I was at sea, the communication between the bridge and combat information center, which is the officer of the deck and the TAO uh, tactical action officer. It's essentially a, a um, like a speakerphone constantly going 24 yes. seven. They are constantly in communication with each other. It would take effort to not communicate with each other more so than to communicate with each other. And that mm-hmm. even goes beside the fact that even if the two people, even if the officer of the deck and the TAO did not want to talk to each other, there's still seven other people on the bridge and 12 to 15 other people in combat information center who can talk to each other and still communicate anyway. So if these people were not in any way communicating with each other, either directly or indirectly, it's either incompetence or I don't even know a word strong enough to to convey the fact that they should never have been put allowed to step off of dry land. To yep. be to be put in charge of a one and a half billion dollar ship. Yeah, I see. At this point, when I, when I was reading that, okay, first off, I was I was felt sorry for the fact that the captain almost died in that collision. In the case of the Fitzgerald, it rammed right into the to the captain's quarters, and then he was um, court-martialed, which I thought. That's pretty harsh. Dude almost died. Now he's being court-martialed and he pled guilty. And it's like, okay, I, the more I look into the, actually, I take that back. I don't know if he pled guilty. Uh, it may have been the McCain uh, commanding officer who pled guilty. One of them pled guilty to something. And the fact is, okay, commanding officer of the Fitzgerald, if you left two officers in charge of TAO, of, of combat and the bridge who aren't talking to each other, okay, the ship only holds 400 some people, maybe 500 some people. It's pretty small when you're at mm-hmm. sea for, you know, you know, a few weeks at a time, you're the crew is on the boat for, or assigned to the ship for years at a time, three or four years at a time. That's a small community. Mm-hmm. There's no way the captain doesn't know these people don't get along with each other. Mm-hmm. There's no way that, you know, reasonably speaking, if you have a concern about the safety of the ship, because these people don't get along with each other, there's no reason you shouldn't have swapped them out or something or taken them to task. You know, hold on before the, I don't know if officers can go to captain's mast or not. There are ways of dealing with this. Article 32, something. Deal with it. Yeah. And if, and if it comes to the, to the point of people lose lives and you, you suffer tens to hundreds of millions of dollars of, of damage to the ship, because these two people would not or could not communicate with each other, 
then yeah, I think the, the captain deserves some definite retribution as a result of that. Well, and it goes back to why were they not talking to each other? And it seems to me there are two possibilities. Um, one, that they were women who were being catty and were quote unquote fighting, which I mean, just that I just have no time for that. No time for that. Um, this business of women and ha- how they carry on with each other. And oh my God, well, I'm not talking to you. And rah, 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 rah. Oh, gee, Anne, why don't, why haven't you had many female friends over the years? Hmm, I have no idea. You know why? It's because I just don't have the time or the patience for that typical post-Christian, post-Western female bullshit. No time for it. So that's one possibility. But then what you kind of, you know, in the little chit-chat conversation that we were having, you kind of brought up the possibility what if these were a couple of dykes and they were fighting with each other? Oh, isn't that interesting? Because this is this is another pathology that goes along. And again, I've I've not had I've been fortunate in my life that I have not had very much interaction at all with with lesbians. But the one thing that I've been told and have learned and, you know, read this and have had it confirmed by, you know, law enforcement people that I know and so on and so forth. Apparently, the dykes just fight all the time and beat the crap out of each other. The highest per capita incidence of domestic violence. Ask any cop this. Who, who, what group as a percentage has the highest incidence of domestic violence and basically just beating the crap out of each other. And it's dykes. Dykes just beat the crap out of each other. Next is gay guys who beat the crap out of each other. And then it's, it's you know, normal male-female relationships on a per capita basis. Now, obviously, because there are so many more heterosexual couples and people, um, on an absolute basis, there are more domestic violence calls that, are, that involve a man and a woman. But as on a percentage basis, um, you know, of this growing but still massively overinflated um there aren't nearly as many sodomites and and lesbians and sex perverts as we'd all be led to believe if we listen to the media but anyway as a percentage the sex perverts being diabolical narcissists we shouldn't we shouldn't be surprised by this they fight and physically fight with each other so is it that these two women in the, in the Navy were friends with each other who were doing the typical female caddy bullshit and fighting with each other to the point where they jeopardized the entire safety of, like you said, a billion and a half dollar boat with all these people on it and get people killed because they're having their little caddy thing. Or is it that they were dykes and they were fighting? Um, that's the dirty little secret that I don't know, may, maybe that information will come out. Um, we'll link, we'll have in the show notes. Absolutely. That, um, that blog citation, again, you're not going to see this in the mainstream media. You've got to get, you know, people who are blowing the whistle and about the only people that, that will expose any of this are private bloggers who will then, um, you know, report on this stuff that, yeah, it was, it was two chicks and they were fighting. 
So there you go. Another typical thing. Like you said, men, even if they have some sort of personal animus with each other, when it's time to go to work, it's time to go to work. And you can put that and men can generally put that stuff aside, get get what needs to be done, done. And then, like you said, after when they're off duty, if they get within 15 feet of each other, they'll they'll knock the crap out of each other and fists will start flying. Fine, fine. But when it's time to drive the ship, um, men are generally what's what's the word? Just emotionally stable and intrinsically superior in in those types of roles in that they can get they can get shit done. Do you think that in all of these centuries and centuries and centuries of warfare that there weren't countless, countless instances of men who got conscripted into outfits um, in whatever century, because they lived in the same communities, they probably had some some history of fighting with each other, and then would have to be cons- and then would get conscripted into the same outfit and have to go off and fight next to each other in a war. And then if they survive, presumably come home. Look, this was happening all the time and on a much on a much, I think, more severe level than just guys with, you know, some sort of a personal animus from the hometown. You stole my girl or whatever. If you look at the history of, say, for example, Italy or something like that, you go and you go out into the Italian countryside and all of these little towns have walls around them. All these little cities are walled. And you say, why in the hell does this little town have a wall? And then why does the little town that's just like a couple miles away on the other side of a valley, why does it have a wall? Well, because they would have wars with each other, okay? Then what would happen is something would happen that would be like on the macro scale, like the Musloid invasion or something. Then what would happen is all of the little walled cities would understand would be told and it would be understood okay we're all now going to form a massive alliance here we all have together we have to get together we have to stop fighting each other for a few years we have to all get together and we have to go fight the musloids because you know that's super 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 serious and so we all have to drop our our disagreements locally fight side by side against the Muslims. And then when we come home, we can start fighting with each other again. And I'm not, I'm not exaggerating here. So you would have men who would end up fighting side by side with men that they had previously been fighting against who had presumably, you know, they had killed each other's family members and so forth, but they come together and do what they have to do in the moment to repel the Muslim invaders or what, or whatever it was. Um, and so men in that sense, I think, are much better at putting that putting putting things to the side when things need to be put to the side. It's just it's just a function of maturity, basically, is what I'm saying. Better at doing that, compartmentalizing all that, getting the work done that needs to be gotten done, and then, you know, at some later point or whatever, you can pick up where you left off. But um, yeah, just another reason why women are very, very, very ill-suited to all of this business of having any engagement with any of these combat operations. I don't think they should be doing that. If you have women in the military at all, they should, as it was back in the day, they should be doing secretarial work. They should be the ones back stateside 
running, running the, you know, not running the bureaucracy, but making the, the bureaucracy function in this day and age. Of course, it isn't typing and so forth, but it's, you know, computer stuff and database management and so on and so forth. There shouldn't be women anywhere near any, you know, functional frontline type of, of military, um, military capability as far as I'm concerned. It's a massive mistake, and I think this just goes to prove it. Um, there are some frontline roles where it makes sense to involve women. and um, Like what? Like what, for example? <laughs> well, I, what is this now? Three, three episodes in a row where I'm, I'm mentioning uh, like, like Tier 1 Special Forces where um, there, there are some... There are some military units that uh, do undercover operations, and if you see a couple of guys walking around who who look, you know, maybe they're mildly out of place, and they have 19-inch biceps, and they're just walking around, looking around, noticing everything, they kind of stand out. But if it's a dude and a girl walking around, they just look like a couple on vacation. And there are women involved with special forces just for that purpose. Sure, but how many are we talking about in the entire world? You'd probably be measured in the dozens. You would have a demand for, you know, several dozen, several, maybe, maybe a few hundred women in the entire world. And then they would have to be vetted very, very carefully. They would need to have, you know, a, a psychological toughness that, that most women simply do not have. So, Say, saying that, yeah, there there is a role for you know espionage and and what you what you were talking about in in that context. Sure, I'll concede that. But the notion that you have to have, as they're trying to do, basically a fifty fifty army, including or military, including all of this frontline stuff, including you know people command commanding naval vessels and so forth. That it should be it should be fifty fifty somehow. That's that's absolutely wrong. And I think uh, in terms of the Navy, and you can speak to this obviously better than I can, but it seems to me that when you're talking about putting people on a ship like that, or I th- they've tried to integrate submarines now too, haven't they? I, I've heard that they were trying to. I don't know if they did or not. That's Oh my gosh. Just, that's, that's, way no. more, that's way more tighter quarters. And, and um, I've never been on a submarine. I'm probably too tall to serve on one, but Mm-hmm. Um, from everything I know, the, the crews on the surface ships, they, they get to know each other and they're in quite close, uh, cl- close quarters, um, mm-hmm. way more so than you'd really want to be anyway for a normal life. I can only imagine for submarines, it's even worse. Yeah. Oh, worse way, in the way, sense way that worse. You are, there, there is no sense of privacy. You are constantly bumping into people because the passages are, the, the hallways are only, what, a foot and a half wide, two feet wide? I mean, it's a luxury mm-hmm. on the surface. You've got three foot wide uh, passageways. So, and it's yeah. just the entire notion that you have a fighting force that that are sexually involved with each other. And let's be grownups about this. That's what happens when you put when you mix uh, like people on a on a on a naval vessel, for example they're going to start having sex with each other. Okay. At most of the time, there's going to be a, come on. I mean, there's men and women, you put them together and this, this is inevitably going to start happening in this fallen world. There's going to almost always be a rank differential between those two people. Now try, start mixing 
chain of command rank differentials in with the fact that that these people who are having sex with each other are you know need to observe that and and work that dynamic and that it's it's insane there's no way you can have a fighting force where that stuff is going on um and so it 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 directly directly impacts readiness and it leave aside for the fact the 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 fact that women are just physically less capable for these things than men than men are just the psychological dynamics of this greatly reduces um combat effectiveness it seems to me and that's just that's just common sense i've never spent a day in the military i didn't even do rotc when i was in high school you just sit here with common sense and you say clearly that's not going to work then you then you start function factoring in the possibility that you have sexually perverse things going on sodomites lesbians I, this is insane. You you have to. It's it's basically the same argument. Um, it's a very close argument that you would make about the priesthood and religious life and so forth. Because by virtue of what what the job is that needs to be done, and the circumstances in which it needs to be done, this demands people. And a force, a fighting force, a leadership, um, and a fighting force in which people are not having all of these bizarre entanglements involving sex and obviously mortal sin, which, I mean, you'll never get the state to talk about that. But you can't, you can't have all these dynamics. You have to have people who are in the moment free, liberated, and able to take all of their focus and all of their energy and direct it towards the job that needs to be done, which, you know, presumably is is fighting and winning, prosecuting and winning war when when that becomes necessary. Okay, that's what needs to be done. You cannot have people who have divided loyalties and, you know, are stressing out because, you know, their their chicky poo is mad at them, but their chicky poo is also their commanding officer. And I mean, oh, it's 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 abject insanity it's i don't know how to really follow on to that other than to say that you know it's not like there's any party to a potential future war that's morally superior or spiritually superior to the other i mean yeah the the united states military we've got our problems and you know we, we look across the way to china as you know okay communist chinese they may not have the same dynamics at play that that are are going on here, but um, they they have the numbers. That's definitely in their advantage, mm-hmm. and maybe that's all that really matters at the end of the day. I don't know. And that's don't know. always been the that's always been the Chinese advantage. I mean, you look at what the Chinese did during uh, the Korean War, and the Chinese had so many men that what they would do is that they would run men at. American positions in Korea and only half the men would even have rifles. They had so many men that they would run unarmed men at American positions just purely as, you know, force of numbers and and pure cannon fodder. The thought being that the time that it takes to shoot that guy who's running at you, the guy behind him with a gun is able to advance a few more feet and you know, if you if you 
put enough numbers at something like that, you're eventually going to break through. I think that's always been, you know, a Chinese tactic precisely because their pagan culture is so depraved that human life basically has little to no value. In fact, human life is 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 on par with animal life in in many ways. Um, and so it just turns into animal farm and, you know, some, some pigs are more equal than others or whatever it is. And that's how these dynamics play out in China and other East Asian and other East Asian cultures. Um, life is so cheap, so cheap. And so, yeah, I think that's, that's a, that's very true in terms of what the Chinese dynamic was. Well, I'm not an expert on land wars in Asia, but I would imagine that the dynamic is probably Napoleon times 10 or a hundred. And I believe mm-hmm. it was Napoleon who said that, how can I possibly lose? I, I spend 25,000 men per week. And you can't keep up with that. Yep. And when it comes to the Chinese ability to project power and just keep throwing waves after waves after waves of people at somebody, that that's fine as long as you can come over land at somebody. But I would imagine that advantage stops where the land stops. And in terms mm-hmm. of the Chinese wanting to attack us, yeah, there's water in the way. I don't think they're going to get here. Well, you know, they have gone west before. So, um, and I think we've talked about this, that, you know, the Mongolian hordes and Genghis Khan and all that, they went, or as as John Kerry says it, what does he say? It's so pretentious. Genghis Khan? Genghis Khan. Gen- Genghis Khan, something like that. I'd have to, we'll, we'll pull that clip up and put it in the show notes too. Ugh, John Kerry makes my flesh crawl. Anyway, they, the Mongolians and Genghis Khan, they go, they go west and that's what they interbred with people in the Rus in Russia. And that's why Russians have that physiognom- physiognomical, slanty-eyed look to them. Why you can look at a Russian and say, mm, that, that dude looks like he's Russian. You can't quite put your finger on it, but it's in the eyes. It's, it's that tiny fraction of Mongolian blood that's still left over. And then I read I read something very, very interesting about that as well. They went and they got into Turkey. So the Mongolians get down into Turkey in the early days of the Islamic political system. And Islam was almost dead. It had almost petered out. And you know what kept it from petering out in the first century, century and a half? It was that the Mongols showed up and they saw this, this political system that was all about hyper-aggressive, militaristic acquisition of territory and land mass, um, ruthless ruthless suppression and taxation and, and establishing and basically conquering. And they said, well, this we're, we need to we need to annex this. We need to integrate this into our into our thing. It was actually the damn Mongolian hordes that that gave a shot of of um, lifeblood back into the Islamical, the Islamic political system, which is actually kind of faltering in the early days. So, oh, we just have, we have so much to thank the Mongolian hordes for. Now I've got to go back and do my research on this because I thought that the situation was that the, the uh, Islamic caliphate was ready to push into Europe three centuries before it did. And the Islamic hordes or not the Islamic hordes, uh, the the Mongol horde came out and 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 butchered about a million and a half of people throughout modern day Iraq, Iran, down into um, Egypt, 
right about the time that the, the Northern Front was pushing into Hungary, and all of a sudden they stopped because Genghis Khan or Genghis, whatever, the, the dude in charge, <laughs> the head dude in charge uh-huh. died, and the message went out, hey, everyone come back home for the funeral. And uh, the Muslims got completely, you know, had their butts handed to them and then some, uh, and, and they, they were entire cities wiped out, cities of 500,000 where 10 people survived. And, it, it, you know, just, just a blessing that about the time the Mongol hordes hit Christianity or, or Christendom, they stopped. But the, the Muslims took it much worse after that. Maybe they decided they had to, they had to uh, develop horse archery and, and a real military after that. I don't know. Maybe that, maybe that was what uh, allowed them to congeal and, and become a force that actually pushed into Europe later on. But I got I to gotta go research that because what you just said contradicts what I thought about history. And, you know, maybe some, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bet five people email in and set us straight one way or the other. Yeah, I was just going to say that because we, we have a very, um, we have a above average intelligence listenership. And there's a, lot of, there's a lot of listeners out there who are very well versed in military history and so forth. So, yes, anyone who has any, um, any data information. And I will try to look up, I think I, I should probably be able to find, I think I remember the book. Um, I should be able to find that, but any listeners out there who are military historians and so forth, and you have any notions about those, you know, those dynamics between Europe, um, the Mongol hordes, Genghis Khan and, and Islam down there in, in Turkey and, and, Eastern, what would you call that? The Caucasus and all of that. If you if you have any information about that, let us know, and we'll set the record straight next week. It'll be an interesting conversation. I want to say the Dan Carlin podcast on the uh, the Wrath of the Cons. He had he developed he devoted was it eighteen to twenty four hours to this topic over four or five wow. ep, uh, episodes, and that's that's where I'm drawing my memory from at the moment. I thought they pretty much just wiped out everybody they came into contact with. And when it came to the, to the Muslim world, the choice was either surrender before we even start killing anybody. And we'll let some of you live or most mm-hmm. of you live. Or if anybody even puts up a fight, we'll kill you all. And unfortunately for the people who lived there, a lot of them put up a resistance and they all got killed. So, mm-hmm. uh, that was the dynamic as I, maybe my memory is faulty. I don't know. It's been a long week and it's Friday night. So <laughs> maybe I'm the one who's not remembering correctly. <laughs> Oh, no, I'm sure we'll find out. And you know what? It'll probably be the answer. Someone will probably email and say, well, you're technically both right. In this century, here's what happened. And in this century, here's what happened. Maybe we're just talking about two different kind of two different mini epochs, you know, since what, when when was the creation of the Islamic political system? Six something, the late sixes. So seventh century versus I don't know, ninth or 10th century or something like that. It's but been, I'm sure, I'm sure we're since here. I, I was going to say, it's been a lot longer since I've read Karen Armstrong's book. So I can't remember um, when Islamism started. Uh, late sixes, I think. I think. So tune in next week for the conclusion of the, <laughs> of the Mongolian horde conversation, which started as a conversation about lesbians in the Navy. How good are we, super nerd? How good are we? It's, this is like a scattershot Friday, I think. I think so. Now, we have one more topic. Um, it's yeah, a big one. As, I'd, ra- as a, I'd rather... As, as, an inter, as an intermezzo, there, there's an email going back to May 6th, and there was a lot going on in my life at the time, uh, which yes. is why this got uh, put aside. Uh, to all the listeners, there's a question that I don't know the answer to, or, or I would have replied to Sally by now. Uh, she was looking for alternatives to the app Laudate. Uh, and I don't know if this is for iPhone or Android, but uh, some, some, she's looking for an alternative to that app. 
Um, I'm aware of the app. Um, she likes doing the liturgy of the hours, mornings, vespers, Compline, and, and that. But uh, she seems to recall that we mentioned some other app for following the traditional mass. I don't remember what she's talking about. So if, if oh, people- it's it's Divinium, the one I use, and it's not an app; it's a website. So as long as you have a browser on your phone, and a lot of people, um, it was funny. Um, Antipope Bergoglio said something a while ago about you know you shouldn't. You shouldn't be using uh, devices in church. And generally, I use, um, I have my missile. My missile is just falling apart. It's glorious. And, you know, I have photographs pasted into it and da, 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 da. And, you know, I, I don't want to, I don't want to give up my missile. But Sancta Misa. there are times, say, say again. Sancta Misa. That, um, that's, the, that's the website. Divinium Officium is the one that I use, and it is it is awesome. So you go to, and it's spelled D-I-V-I-N-U-M-O-F-F-I-C-I-U-M dot com. So you just go to Divinium Officium, and it has, it defaults to today. You can do, and then from the homepage, you tell it, you click on, do I want to go to the divine office or do I want to go to the mass of the day? So you go to the mass of the day, presumably, and it says right at the top, you know, whose feast it is. Um, it has, it has, it's set in Latin class, da, 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 da. And then on the left, Latin, on the right, whatever your language is. And you can scroll down to the bottom and you can change it. But I, I presume that, I suspect that it reads your IP address and then calibrates to your IP address. People all over the world use this. People in Italy use it. People in um, Spain use it. It has all of these, like, I think it has a Hungarian. It's a, it's incredibly well done incredibly well laid out and it's every word of the mass it's not like you know when you're using a hand missile you have to flip back and forth between um you know the ordinary of the mass in other words the things that are fixed in every single mass and then the proper prayers and so you have to flip back and forth there's two different sections for that which makes sense if you know how to use a a missile it makes perfect sense the thing that's really cool about these electronic devices is that you don't have to do any flipping is that it's it doesn't use any more i mean relative to how to how cheap memory and bandwidth is anymore for especially for text it doesn't cost anybody any more to have every single word of the mass in order every day so you don't have to do any flipping back and forth you can just scroll right through the mass in order it's all there. And then if you pray the divine office, the entire office, you can pick, you can pick which office. Um, and then the thing that was cool this year, because, um, you know, Ecclesia Day gave basically everybody permission to do the pre-1955 Holy Week before all the horrible changes were made. What was so cool was going to Holy Week this past year, opening up Divinium Officium, scrolling down to the bottom and changing the rubrics from the 1962, which is what, you, you know, we're generally using every day to haha, we get to do the pre-55 Holy Week, get to change your rubrics on Divinium, Divinium Officium to Trent 1570. How cool is that? Show me all, show me the masses and all of the rubrics from 1570 Council of Trent 
promulgation. That's what we're doing this year. How cool was that? But then in terms of using, um, in terms of using an electronic device, I generally use my missile when, you know, just day to day. But I will admit that if I go on a pilgrimage somewhere and I'm trying to pack very light, missile's really heavy. And so if I'm just going on a quick pilgrimage, I will just use my phone. I will just use Divinium Officium just in order to make it so that I don't have to carry another bag that I can carry, you know, my all my overnight stuff in my little daily backpack that I that I carry, um, which is basically a purse. It's very girly, but it, it it's in the shape of a backpack. But I can I can pack one overnight set of clothes and toiletry in my little backpack purse that I carry if I take my missile out. And so sometimes I will make the calculation and take the missile out and just use the phone. Um, and I don't I don't feel like using the phone is any horrible horrible thing do you ever do you ever use a phone when you go to mass um it's slightly gauche but at, at times i have used it yes mm -hmm, mm -hmm. i think i think most people by now have and like like i think a lot of people in general books everything in general i vastly vastly prefer to have paper in my hand i, I prefer that format i think it's easier on the eyes everything else but sure there are times when practically speaking yeah you you can go ahead and, and use your phone during mass. But you, the the thing is, is that you shouldn't be um, like if you have social media or whatever or browsing capability. Well, of course, you have browsing capability because Divinium Officium isn't an app. It's a website. So you have to have a browser. But obviously, during mass, you shouldn't be doing things like messaging people. Um, checking email that I think that's definitely impious. But if you're using your device just as a basically as a substitute missile as a book, then yeah, I, I don't think there's a problem with it. And I, I am very much chagrined that I totally forgot about this, but yes, I, I, in reading Sally's email, I just assumed that it was an app that we were referring to and not the website. And now that I look at it closer, I realize that she would, she never said app. It was something we had mm -hmm. been talking about and I just said a different name, but yes, um, Divinium Officium uh, is, is what comes up in my phone, even though I, give it a different name as, as the, the link on my desktop is Sancta Mesa. I don't know why in the world there's that bifurcation of names, but there it is. Um, the link will be in the show notes and uh, I will email that back to Sally and sorry, it took a month and a half to get, <laughs> get this answer back <laughs> to you, but uh, you're getting the answer in, in two media. How cool is that? Very cool. Well, I was going to say intermezzo before the next topic, but we are well yeah. past an hour. Do we want to, do we have any other uh, topics we want to pick off? I know we've no. got more on on the schedule that we can talk about next time, but in, any other uh, targets of opportunity to which we might want to reply? Um, let me think. Anything else? No, I think we just wrap it up and um, do our do our normal <laughs> begging everyone's thanks and and giving our giving our gratitude to one and all. So if you want to launch into that, go right ahead. Um, do you want to try to go for longer than last week or no? <laughs> No, <laughs> no, 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 no. Who, who was it? Someone, someone talked to you and said, yeah, your, your final thought conclusion wrap up was 30 minutes last week. So try to try to be a little more brief. Indeed. Indeed. I'll see if we can keep it under five minutes. Ready? Okay. Okay. Go. go. Uh, the email address for the podcast where you can send feedback, comments, suggestions, and how well we did in keeping the wrap up short is podcast at barnhart.biz. Masses for Ann's benefactors. If you're hearing them, 
it's it, masses, masses for ANS benefactors every single day. And the uh, there's a weekly requiem mass, which happens weekly. And mm-hmm. um, please join your intentions with the priests to offer these masses. They have they're humans. They need prayers too. And um, pray for all of them. I think I can get this done in under five minutes without rushing myself. I'll slow down now. ANS or no, we talked about ANS benefactors. Uh, yeah. The Barnhart Podcast is a production of Super Nerd Media. If you found something of value in this podcast or previous podcasts and you would like to return some value, please uh, visit supernerdmedia.com slash donate for more details. And that's what Nora Lee, Charles, Susan, Jean, Michael, and Arthur did. Thank you very much for your support. And you've got a little initiative that you like to push. Um, I do. The first thing I want to say is that at this week's Requiem Mass, um, Coco the Gorilla will not be included in that intention because she was not a rational intellect. Just saying. Um, And yes, um, thank you so much for donating to Super Nerd, who is a completely separate entity. And just very quickly, um, no news is good news with regards to Tiny Princess in a certain in a certain sense. Any any quick update just kind of going along sideways and everything cool um she's it's still up in the air whether or not she's gonna be one of the one percent who makes it to six months after uh, mm-hmm. being born um we're only two months in so there's a lot a lot of time left uh but oh oh and i do want to share if i may there was some good news you have been able to um you know get access to getting some help maybe with the overnight shift in in home care is that correct yes i know a yes. lot of people were concerned about that so yes in fact um last night my niece who uh is is a traveling nurse and and um you know w- when you're young and single and you want to travel and and get paid at the same time that's apparently a great way to do it she is back in the local area and uh, her next uh 3 or 4 month uh contract is is local she came over and stayed overnight, and uh, that was a gigantic blessing for my wife. I think it was the first time in maybe two months that she actually got a decent night's sleep. So yeah. that that's a yeah. that was big, and and uh, certainly looking forward to you know for her sake having having that opportunity more often in the future. Okay, well, so we won't call it exactly sideways, but it's. No, no rushing to the hospital or anything like that. And there is there is positive motion forward in terms of getting in home in home assistance. So generally, generally kind of sort of good news. So there you go. Yes. But prayers, please continued prayers for tiny princess and and super nerd and super mommy and the entire family. Um, and my stale Big Mac initiative, again, just can't I can't thank everyone enough. Um, but I will reiterate that what the stale big Mac initiative is trying to do. And what I've been counseled to do is attempt to build a larger, broader subscription base of low dollar, um, low dollar donations. So that's why we called it stale big Mac. Cause that's about five bucks. Um, and that's, <laughs> that's a level of utility that I'm pretty confident that I might be able to deliver. But then whenever it's, I have to be really careful and I try not to talk about money hardly ever because every time I do, um, you know, the munificence of the benefactors just comes flowing forth to the point that I worry sometimes. I gen, I genuinely worry. You know, obviously, I don't know what the financial situation of, of basically anyone is that that donates to me. But sometimes I just worry, like, are you sure this is this has to be a non-trivial percentage of your of your rent or your mortgage payment this month? Are you sure? Um, so, again, thank you all 
so very much, but going to keep pushing the Big Mac, the stale Big Mac initiative in terms of the low dollar kind of podcast subscription, um, podcast subscription paradigm. So that's what the little icon of the, of the Big Mac that are, that's now showing up on the posts on the website and will show up on the post for the podcast is about. Thank you all so, so very much. Can't, can't thank you enough. And once again, I'm just shocked and humbled by by everyone's generosity and and support and what seems to be a a sentiment of genuine affection and I don't know why because I just I just scream and yell and rant and rave but people seem to people seem to enjoy it and and are and and are very very kind to me personally and so I can't thank you enough it's entertaining and um and also uh, efficacious and um enlightening and if I could think about well, another E in the alliteration, I would come up with one. But um, I hope so. I hope so. I hope. I hope it's edifying, and I hope that <laughs> edifying. That was uh, the fourth one, darn it. <laughs> edifying, edifying, edifying. Yes, there we go. And obviously, I've, I'm sure that I've said things that are incorrect, and I'll find out about it. Hopefully, before the end of my life. And if not, I'll find about out about out it. I'll find out about it at my particular and maybe at the general judgment as well. But obviously I, I genuinely, genuinely believe that things that I say are correct. And I'm obviously trying to be correct. And I worry very much about saying things that are correct and not saying things that are incorrect. So, and I'm sure, you know, super nerd, obviously any sane person should have that level of, of care. You know, I, I don't want to, say things that are wrong. So in that spirit, don't forget to look up um, history of the Mongol hordes interaction with Islam in the Caucasus and the Turkish, um, what's that called? Isthmus and the Isthmus of Turkey. So we'll, we'll correct and make sure that there are no errors in next week's show. I think we went over five minutes, darn it. Yeah, uh, darn, but not by much, not by much. Okay. Uh, on that spirit until next week, I am super nerd. And I'm Ann. Thanks, guys. God bless.